Hey, I'm Dina. I'm Nikki. And we're your hosts for CBD Madcast. CBD Madcast is devoted to the legalization of cannabis and its impact in your community. Visit us at CannabisBeyondDope.com. Hey, Nikki. Hi, Dina. How's it going today? Great. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. We're here with Jeremy Mobert with Canisol Farms. And Kate from Tacoma. And Kate from Tacoma. I'm so excited she's here. <laughs> <laughs> Two Tacomans. Is it? Tacomans. Yep. Do you call yourselves? I don't Tacoma-ites. know. Tacomaites? Tacomaites. Tacomans. Someone was just asking me that the other day. I know, day. it's a tough one. They're, you're the, no, you're the 253s. That's what oh, they are because right. of the little. Uh, they I, I cannot the heart follow five. the breaking up of the prefixes. They only go to the 253 because of the heart. You know, uh, they like do this like weird. Uh, okay. And I'm loving Tacoma. Yeah, some gems there. Yeah, yeah. And even if they aren't gems, at least it's still a small business. Yeah. Right? And there's and there's still like, it, it, there's like the gentrification that happened in Capitol Hill. It's like, it hasn't happened in Tacoma. You still got the neighborhoods, you know. Well, Hilltop is not different. dangerous now, which is at least good. But you're not right. also turned over, like you say, to Right, they're yeah. holding on to the culture of Hilltop. We all so. want a little bit. We just don't want it <laughs> just completely so that there's no artist community and there's no... But we still want really nice restaurants to go to and we don't, and we want to be safe. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's exactly mm-hmm. it. And that's what I love so much is that everybody's got their own... Even if they own three restaurants, they're all different. The account of it. Yeah, there's not a lot of corporate stuff going on there. No, not a lot. And I love that. I love that too. So we are here having a chance to chat with you after our awesome farm tour. And we've come to your homestead. It's amazing. We're out here with off-grid mm-hmm. solar power. We're in front of a lake. We've got uh, just uh, salmon's going to be cooking on a barbie. Oh, my gosh. I can't even just. Mm-hmm. Okay. So <laughs> we were chatting a little bit earlier. We want to start our interview with you for the podcast. So do us a favor. Please introduce yourself real quick and uh, what you do and why you do it. And then we'll get into the nitty gritty. Well, I'm Jeremy Moberg. Um, I've been growing weed my whole life. I am a slave to the plant. It's, I don't think it's a desire or a want to do it any anymore. It's just I'm a slave. <laughs> and like I've kind of just given that up. So very smart plant. Cannabis was able to enslave me and a lot of others at great peril in order to seek its benefits. So started when I was 17 years old and been growing the entire time. Did the the hill grows out here, you know, did indoor, did diesel assist, done them, kind of done them all, you know, and a lot of them were not that sustainable back then either. You know, I remember growing indoors in Spokane in the basement and having to like deal with all this rock wall and couldn't throw it away because that would imperil me. I couldn't throw it in the backyard because I was renting the place, that would imperil me. And I came to the conclusion the only thing I could really do is go throw it in the river. And I did that. And then I was like, never again. You know, why am I why am I gonna do this? So fast forward kind of started started taking it outdoors and started seeing the folly in in indoors. Like just I, I love the weed. It was great. Loved it. Um, but and then started growing weed full term outdoors in the hills, not so great weed. And then in the in ninety seven started doing light deprivation. And that really changed everything. And then with legalization was just very excited about just the freedoms that came with it. You know, thought that the market was going to be interesting, you know, didn't pay a lot of attention to it at first until I realized that they were gonna make it indoor only. And then I started lobbying. So I formed the Okanagan Cannabis Association 
in 2012, right after the election, teamed up with Buffalo Mazzetti, who's an environmental activist from the old hippie from the area. And we went and gave a PowerPoint to the LCB that really changed the course of where they were headed as far as rulemaking. And then it, it took a little bit more lobbying, but eventually we got the outdoor grows legalized here. So that kind of set me up to get into it. You know, I wasn't even sure when I was lobbying for SunGrown whether I was planning on getting in the business or not. But then kind of was like, oh, I know what's going on here. I might as well participate. So it was one of the first to market in the early days. Did um, you win the lottery or did you buy a license and have it? No, that so we just, in the pro producer processors, it was just like sign up and get approved. That's why there's so much production because they never really set up a way to match the the uh, canopy production, the license production to the market. They oh. just opened a 30-day window. Whoever applied gets to go through the process. No merits, nothing. As long as you qualify, you get the license. And that's kind of where I formed Canisaw Farms in 2013. And now I'm in my fifth year under Canisaw Farms in the legal market doing light deprivation. I just think it's the weed that is the weed of the future. Mm -hmm. Sustainable, high terpene, high cannabinoid. Natural. We'll be showing some pictures too because it's outstanding. Looks like indoor, outdoor. It's unbelievable. Well, as I was saying, you know, there's only two types of weed, and it and it's not indoor and outdoor. Everybody everybody thinks that it is, and it's and it's actually, as a, you know, a little bit of obtuse concept, but it's slow fluorogen release and quick fluorogen release. Fluorogen being the hormone in the plant that initiates flowering. This hormone's produced at night. That's why darkness initiates uh, flowering. So the, the quick release fluorogen is what indoor growers and light deprivation growers do. They go from 18 hours of light to 12 hours of light. That's a sudden increase in darkness, which is a sudden increase of that fluorogen flowering hormone. That that just shocks the plant into uh, flowering. That's the weed we love. The weed we all love does not occur naturally. And naturally, that plant is going to go through a season where those nights get longer very incrementally. So it's just getting a little bit more floragen every day. By the time it gets enough floragen to know that it's flowering, the end of the season's near. The angle of the sun's low, nighttime temperatures are low. That's not great growing conditions. That's what, that's what creates outdoor with that, with that low calyx to leaf ratio. It's leafy weed, right? That's outdoor. That's natural weed. What we like is this weed that gets all that floragen from going from 18 hours of light to a sudden 12 hours light. Not, you can't do that in nature. Right. And, and that's what's actually determining the quality. It's not the light source. Everybody thinks that it's indoor versus outdoor. It's not. It's that 18 to 12 sudden shift. So you can do that. Indoor growers do it and grow beautiful weed. Right. It has a high environmental impact, has a lot of problems with it. There's no living soil. There's no, the organic principles don't even apply. Right. You know, organic should be grown in the soil. It should include soil conservation. It should, that plant should see the day of the sun to get that certification. We can talk about that because this state's about ready to make a really big mistake on the organic certification that's coming for cannabis. So I'm curious, just for, for listeners especially, so what you do, you would consider a light deprivation grow? Okay, yes, cool. it's light deprivation. So I, you guys saw that I did do some natural full term. Right. I call it full term. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> full term. We kind of talked about full spectrum and the difference, you know, between getting all that sunlight. But you're still using sunlight just in a light deprivation model, grow model, yeah. and as as opposed to artificial lighting, which is used in a warehouse, which also often uses light deprivation because 
of nighttime and, and shutting it off. But it, and it's that controlled temperature as well that makes a big difference, you think, between like, you know, you grow in your greenhouse and basically does the temperature make a big difference, you think? Well, I, the swings in temperature yeah. do. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the, the thing about indoor light, growing, because I've done a lot of it, right? I did right. diesel grows here because that was in prohibition when I just wanted to grow good wheat. <laughs> I'm used to also being by myself, so I will sit I and just like smoke. The or, no, I wasn't a cigarette smoker, but I've just around here you too. always roll your own. You I'm know? always cheating, so. <laughs> but I'm this aware. is a live resin super joint, so I definitely didn't want to bogart that. No, totally. It's burned <laughs> for a long time. But to your point about temperature, you know, and just the environmental differences between a controlled environment, because you're often going to hear from indoor growers that the real benefit of their quality is that they can really get these uh, just maximize perfect conditions, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I actually think that that's part of the problem, sure. right? Because you you're, you may have this perfect growing conditions, but that's not what's going to give you the cannabinoidal and terpene response that that plant's capable of doing. And so having the swings between nighttime and daytime temperature, the swings between early fall and late fall, that is all stress on the plant that is going to evoke a response. And in fact, the data is backing this up. We're seeing higher cannabinoids and terpene production in light deprivation than we are indoor. And it's because of that environment is so the same all the time. It may be perfect, but it's the same all the time. And it's not, that plant's not doing anything. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's what I think is so amazing about what we noticed with your farm. You have so many different setups going on within one construct setup and within that you're seeing all of these different affects that come from that construct and it's astounding and amazing and information that is never ever been recorded before yes in a way that we would ever at least be able to get our hands on so what you're referring to is the fact that i i do this scheduled uh harvest where there's always hoops at every stage of growth like and you had that outdoor version that you just wanted to see what would happen Mm -hmm. that you popped from seed one of the things that we thought i was really great that we noticed was the back part of your lot where you hadn't amended the soil Mm -hmm. they were bigger and the whole front that you had amended the soil they were smaller and who would think that it's so counterintuitive and right. yet you have that data now. And, and also that soil was already used, right? Like this is soil that I make, that I'm sourcing locally. Right. You know, it's coming from a peat bog that's hip, it's hypnum peat moss. It's not sphagnum. Sphagnum is not a sustainable product. You know, nor is core. You know, everybody, everybody's using sphagnum and core and neither of those are sustainable products. You know, sustainability is really something that needs to be defined and there needs to be clear distinctions between what is sustainable and what's not. I don't buy bags of nutrients. I buy bulk loads. I don't want to throw away a hundred bags. You know, everybody's buying bags. They're all, there's this whole waste distribution pipeline that's going on. And that's why I'm excited about folks like... Who's can, yeah, can a cycle. Can yeah, a cycle, can thank cycle. you. It's that same idea. All of that plastic can go in a big pile together so that they can burn it down and make a bench out of it. And mm-hmm. we need to be able to collect that. We need Everybody to be able to get the food Everybody needs to monitor out. their waste streams. Yes. You have to monitor their waste streams because they're probably not waste. It's probably can be reused. We were having this discussion about nutrients earlier. And there's two ways to think about nutrients. There's the, there's the stream of nutrient flow or there's the, you're filling the bucket up. Yeah. You know, and, and really what everybody's doing that's growing in pots or hydroponically, whether it's indoor or outdoor, 
receptors, they've created a stream of, of nutrient flow. Well, that stream ultimately becomes affluent or waste or, or environmental hazards. Right. You know, those are full of nitrates and phosphates that are, you know, not good for the creeks. So where, where is that going? It's going somewhere. You know, it could either needs to be treated or it's going to go in the river. Yes, or it's got to go through this municipal treatment plant, which, like, somebody has to pay for that. The other model is a bucket, and that's where living soil and, and no-till practices, organic practices, that's what they rely on. You, you've you put in nutrients one time, because when we harvest, we don't take a lot out. Right. You know, that's not a lot of minerals and everything coming out. It's, I mean, it's grams. It's, we dry it out. It's not that much, you know. So 99% of the nutrients are still there. You just have to build the microbial community that can break those down and keep those readily available. So once you've poured in enough nutrients and you filled that bucket, you don't have to keep adding it. That creates sustainability all the way down the pipeline where you're no longer ordering and importing all of these nutrients. What so, a great, uh, yeah. yeah, what a great model. You guys have so much going on over at Canisall right now. It's a lot. <laughs> so much going on. It's, it's a lot to manage. Yeah. But yet you're also creating the infrastructure for that. Your management skills get to be a lot less imposing and you get to get back to what you're really good at and that's advocating that this industry stays where it really should. And they better hope that it takes me a long time to get my shit together (laughs) because if I had full time just to go out and and point out the hypocrisies in this industry I would yeah yeah so let's get you here so you can do that because you're so good at it too and and you're on point about it I don't think you do it disrespectfully I don't think that you do it in a shy form either I think there's a perfect balance that you put forward that this really just is the way that it should be and it comes from science and observation and awareness and consideration as a opposed to your agenda I know and I've, I, I live the lifestyle too I have the entire time and yeah. I, we all have impacts I get that where can we reduce our impacts and get the biggest bang for it right well we're not gonna stop driving cars we all have that impact but recreational marijuana that can be grown outdoors at the quality that you guys saw today pretty much makes the makes the argument that we should not be growing indoors at all it should have been done by policy i'm not that radical that i'm going to say let's shut it down completely but what i do want to see is some market differentiation for what we do and i thought we had that with your organic standard but that's just a money pit i was part of the organic movement and it didn't go anywhere as far as the little guy went it only went as far as what big guy was going to pay for what labeling so while everybody's trying you just had to find the farm that did it right and source your products and through communication and finding them and research because the organic trade association the standard of organic for usda it's to me a propped up shell it's unintentional i think that the desires behind it were better it's the execution that just can't because of large agro and organics in trouble right now last year the usda found that hydroponic gardening or growing can be considered organic that was a very controversial finding and it's what's opened the door now for organic cannabis in Washington for that certification to be given to indoor growers. And it looks like that's what's going to happen. And so we're fighting really hard right now to make sure that doesn't happen. And I met with the WSDA organic program director as well as the governor's office and their cannabis advisor and had the discussion about, look, you guys are going to look back at this point when you guys legitimized indoor agriculture and called it organic. 
Like, that's going to be crazy. Yeah. There's no way a plant that never sees the light of day could be considered organic, much less a plant that's not grown in soil. You know, I, and I was I was fairly bemiffed that they made that you can get organic, which if you read all of the organic center, it's all about soil conservation. Now you don't even need soil and you can get it. And the funny thing is, is, is the organic growers or the, the cannabis growers are in WSDA says they're going to give them sort of the certification. It's like, how can that be? Yeah. How can you use an right. artificial light? nutrient right i mean the sun's a nutrient it's the biggest nutrient you create that artificially and you're going to call that organic and we'll see i think that it became obvious to them that maybe they do have a problem because like look also cannabis built this whole entire industry behind it it took a high value crop to get the technology where it is today in order to open up this entire new sort of agriculture industry that's coming because we have made because marijuana had the price that afforded the development of this technology where it's cheap enough now where we may be growing all of our crops indoors or much of our crops indoors and I think that's fine to an extent, just don't give it the organic standard. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that on the way over here, Nikki and I were talking about the idea of all of this product being grown over here and it being a different culture on the eastern side of the state versus the western side, which is moves all the product. Yeah, so it's like you have to have is. both. So I like the idea that you would bring all apples the grow the out here. Thing. Well, that's exactly it. Anything mm -hmm. that gets grown over here, yeah, apples, pears. You consume it. It's always been like that. It's always been like that. You can't have one without the other. You can't secede from Washington yeah. as a whole because you do the one thing and we do the other. And but it's oh important. the Washington bipolar. <laughs> it's so interesting, but it's that exact opposite. Long. Exactly. And so the idea that the grow is is larger over here is a good idea in my opinion. I like the idea that we have a lot of the grow that's outdoor in here and then the sustainability of, of output and, and get the product moving through the western part mm -hmm. and out. I think the innovation's cool on indoor. I've grown indoors and I don't think you know, during prohibition, it was fine, right? I was going to get weed out no matter what. I didn't care what the cost was. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the price of being illegal. If I got to, if I got to run diesel generators or some rock will ends up in a river, that's on the government, not on me. Mm -hmm. But now it's on me. Yeah. You know, so you can, we could have made those decisions under prohibition and be ju absolutely justified. But now you've got to look at it and be like, what is my impact? Mm -hmm. And is it really worth it? And unfortunately, Seattle invented green bud they invented indoor growing so we've got this culture of it that doesn't which which are generally environmentalists right. <laughs> and don't really want to admit you know because that 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 what they're doing is not sustainable and so then they go through great lengths to claim sustainability so back to somebody's going in and asking for sun grown the kind of answers that we've gotten oh well soul shine they're sun grown or sunshine they must be sun grown. <laughs> They're not. <Yeah. laughs> or of the soil. Yeah. You know, oh, one of those has to be sustainably grown outside, light deprivation, right? Like, no, no, none of them. There's a desire because they know that there's a PR problem. They're aware of it. And so anything they can do to sort of market themselves. And then that's a real affront to me. You know, that's language that they're taking from me. So, you know, you put sustainable on your packaging and then really small letters. So you're or now you're going to get the state along with your plan. You're going to get certified organic. The whole reason my company has survived is off of this messaging. And now when I go into the to the buyer and they're like, well, you say you're all sustainable, but these guys got an organic certification. The public doesn't know the difference. So I'm just going to go with them. So I, we're going to lose our one advantage that we have right now and I actually think 
if the standard does go to indoor growers, it's going to be really detrimental to sun growers. So we're fighting really hard. The issue is super relevant right now because we are seeing the lower four snake dams discussion coming up again in the face of the starving orcas. You know, they're starving because there's no Chinook. Well, there's a big reason there's no Chinook. The, the governor just put together, our last spring, put together an orca advisory group, and they put their conclusions out, and they recommended dam removal. For the, you know, it's like, if you really want to take care of this problem, you've got to get rid of the, some dams. And the lower four snake dams are are it you know they've been it forever they they it's five percent of the bpa's power it's equal to what they lose in transmission loss it's not a lot of power and so if we could just give the consumers here some confidence in that organic certification you know because we don't need to follow the usda you know we're not usda legal the legislation that the that the state passed uh, added must follow the USDA to the extent practical. That's what we're working on is that to the extent practical. We've got a door open here for the WSDA and the governor's office to do the right thing here, which is pump the brakes on this, on at least giving this industrialized agriculture the organic certification. Well, especially amidst all the other things that we have to worry about, like misdemeanors on people who don't read an ID correctly or a felony on somebody who sells product. I guess I think we have more yeah. things or that we frankly, could be relieving. Yes, yeah, some people that are in jail for cannabis crimes, like things to focus our attention on right now are not. Did you see Seattle just, just did it yesterday? I, I didn't see that yesterday, but yeah. we attended the Cannabis Alliance meeting about two weeks ago now, and I knew it was coming up, so I'm, cool. I'm very excited yeah, good for to, Peter Holmes. to be reading this. This is, uh, you know, there's much more pressing issues than certainly yeah. trying to get indoor growing any more attention, because they're doing, you know, this industry is, is super innovative. I think they should be allowed to do you know kind of what they're doing for the time being while we're in a very experimental very hopefully research driven phase as you're also leading by example with um which i think is the key like these cannabis farms and and labs and and warehouses they should be also research hubs as much as they are a production facility there's for so something much that is potential so i agree with you 100 percent yeah. There's so much potential for data collection yeah. here, yes. Well, just what you were doing today, just what we were able to talk about just today doing the tour. That level of data collection that you do just from your growing outside and your deprivation of light and all of that is, again, uncharted. We don't have that information anywhere. Yeah. The information has not been good. We were talking about that earlier, too. Uh, the labs, just too much variation for whatever the reason, you know, and I don't know if it can be fixed through standardization or not. They've kind of had a long time to try to figure it out. I don't think they know what they're doing at all and because it's never been done. What are they testing for? They had to make the test up in the first place. So I think that there's an awful lot of that fundamental foundation that's not there, specifically because there's no not been any testing. They'll probably find in a year that they were doing all of the wrong things, and that's why they were getting the wrong results, right? Instead of figuring out how it would work to actually test for what they're going for. A lot of challenges on the data side. We have the research license. Doesn't seem like a lot of them are, or a lot of people are taking up the research license. You know, building software, you guys saw a little bit that runs the company, that should set it up in order to make it very easy to do side-by-side -side comparisons and collect that data in a commercial setting. You 
you can do research and you can grow for commerce at the same time. The whole idea is that that's exactly what's happening is you pay attention and then you collect the information of what's happening in front of you. And then that's what you're able to offer out, just like you're saying about the differences between the light deprivation versus the type of light it is. That's a really small, humongous detail. Yeah, and, and one that's on the forefront, you know, the way, the way, you know, PAR, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but photoactive radiation, you know, the, the spectrum of the light that the plant actually absorbs in the process of chlorophyll, producing chlorophyll and energy to, to power it, it's only two narrow bandwidths of light. So there was this whole line of thinking that really you could reduce it, you could reduce the growth of the plant and therefore conserve energy right and so the leds came along and they've been they've been tuned to those wavelengths that where they took out mm-hmm. all the wavelengths that were not active in photosynthesis and that's a lot of savings in energy but i just feel like when you've reduced it down to that point that maybe the plant is not fully expressing its its capacity so you're not getting the quality necessarily by reducing it down to just these wavelengths that we think are you know, important in, in photosynthesis. Well, and that's one of the things I always say about vitamins. You take a vitamin B12, but there's a whole spectrum of that, that it all works in concert together. So while you may get a boost from the B12, what are you missing that generally comes with a big panel of B that nature puts together? And so I've known people. Get... I've known people that are freaked out on B twelve and like taking so much, and I've seen them like crash. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. unreal, but you don't get the full spectrum of something mm-hmm. like that. That's right. it's not natural energy. Yeah, you know they call it natural energy because it's a vitamin, but it's mm-hmm. not natural energy. It's isolated. Right. Well, that's the whole thing with with cannabis, right? Is that nothing is isolated. It everything is interacting to produce a different effect. And that's the terpenes and the other cannabinoids all Mm -hmm. combining together. Mm -hmm. That's that's an infinitely complex story to tell. Mm-hmm. Right. Dead. We we tell a very simple story about sativa and indica. Right. You know, and then we violate that story as I was telling <laughs> and you make guys everything earlier. A hybrid. We say we we think that myrcene is is driving the indica effect, and then we have all these sativas full of myrcene, and we have the and they're full of myrcene because because commercial growers want to grow for for speed. They want right. short flowering times, and the myrcene is associated with short flowering times. So when they create a sativa and try to retain the short flowering time. They're bringing in a bunch of that mercine. Because well, do you really have a, a, a sativa if you if it's loaded with mercine? I don't think so. Right. And because in prohibition, there may have seemed like there was no weed for some people, but there was plenty of weed. Like there has always been cannabis to be had. Yeah. And, and you know, it's been condensed it, in the places where people have been making these sativas full of mercine, so. Well, and you think about like the whole history of it and how we had the land race strains to begin with. We're the ones that hybridized, specifically right. Northern California and, and, and the Netherlands, but we're the ones that hybridized. The, the, our, our parents, when they were importing weed, either had like pure Indica Afghanis or they were getting like pure Thailand or Acapulco or all of these, all of these regional things. <laughs> and, <laughs> I thought it was something toys. under the deck. 
Sweet boys play so with So we toy. we ha- our parents kind of had that golden age of of access to pre-hybridized genetics. Now don't get me wrong, hybridized genetics are a beautiful thing. Yeah. But just the story of Mersine alone muddied the waters a bit so that now it's really hard to find strains that don't have Mersine. Everything I think, is I think, changing. I think that's what happened, right? Is yeah. somebody wanted, they don't, it's 12 weeks to, to get those good sativas. It's 10 weeks at least. And so nobody wants to go the full 10 weeks, so they'll hybridize and then yeah. forget to tell you. Yeah, or don't label it because of one thing or another. Or, and I heard too from some folks, like a lot of times when it was the big gold rush, if you will, of the cannabis start, there were people just saying whatever it was that was popular. The seed is oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. This, Making this, up names. Yes. Yeah, and then, sure. yeah. Uh, this start sure. is that and you don't know yeah. Yeah. and then you have well, you go to figure it out and then and then you've got distributors like you've got Cowlitz who, who has all these brands out and they don't grow weed or process weed they just brand and sell and distribute weed yeah. so you don't know where that weed's coming from can't ask the question about whether it was sustainable or whether it was organic or whether you like the pesticides or whether were, they were legal pesticides even the farms are really what have the branding capacity here it is our values and our methodologies <laughs> that are really going to make the difference. If you're just an oil maker and all you can do is market how you make oil different, you can only take that story so far. Exactly, exactly. You know? And limited. after a while, you have to say, if you're Starbucks, you can only say our coffee's so good for so long before you have to say, you know what makes it good is where we source it from. We want to be sustainable and we want to be fair. And they start telling that story. So you walk into a Starbucks now and you see the fields where pictures of the fields where they were yeah. grown. So if you're a processor in this market right now, you've got to take it back to the farm or else the only thing you have to really to negotiate on is whatever technique you have, which isn't going to get you that far, in price. And that's what we're seeing. When, you, when you're when cowlitz and all you have is price. And it, there's a consistency to that. And yeah. it does sell because people have to afford it. And the habit of doing it versus the quality of doing it, I think gets in the way of that as well, just as humans. I want weed to be cheap. And that's the beauty of my model, is that it's cheaper than indoor. Not that much cheaper. You guys saw how intensive it was. And we've we developed. did. We did. We talked about that in light of the fact that you're losing out three months of grow opportunity compared to indoor. And yet you have to compete. And also people have this opinion that it should be less you also have a lot the smallest less. team that we've seen i mean i know your team is mm. a little bit more than who we saw today but yeah it looks like you have under 15 people working for you yeah and yeah. that is that is thin yeah and that is should have been, that, that been here two weeks ago i had like 20 yeah, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah for harvest right like yeah, yeah so well and, it, so it's, and we're, we're getting it down we're starting to get finally better i mean i'm i'm up managing three tier threes with with a pretty small crew and a lot of it is learning from the prior years about how to grow in a way that reduces labor and increases quality which is amazing because you've done that you have such an incredible crop growing and your biggest deal is we got to get them leafed every day and then we've got to get them cut now it's time but they're self-managed and they were beautiful it was very clean they were very happy the whole setup was just beautiful yeah just growing little plants that they they like to be little everybody's got this idea that like big plants are you know they are impressive after you realize that they're impressive then you're just on a ladder 
We can't wait to show off all of the photos that we took of your buds today at Camisol. So it's mind blowing how beautiful yeah. that flower is. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. So many different flowers that we haven't seen yet or seen before that are growing differently that are all in the same tent at all these different heights <laughs> it was super unique so i think that recognition of the sustainability and the love and attention is incredible absolutely and i love too that which i i understand why other places that grow indoors don't do this but i loved how we just walked through everything yeah. that was magical to be able yeah. to say come on in here and we just opened it up and we went in there yeah, that I mean, was awesome. I'm, yeah, I don't, I'm, it, we're in the open air. If there's bugs, I'm going to get them. I'm going to deal with them. We have our fair share of, it, it's the environment. Things right. happen. Yeah. There's critters out there. It can be tough. But that's also how you know you have a healthy plant. If you didn't have a critter wanting to eat your plant, your plant doesn't have much value. <laughs> yeah, we saw that there were plants that are definitely responding differently to pests. Mm -hmm. Some of them are attracting them. And some of them are either because they're weak or there's something about them that attract them. It's interesting to start to think about how you manage the complex interactions of biology here with these critters. Could you plant every fifth plant, a plant that they want to be on? So they just go for that plant. Yep. And so, because like you say, you're going to get them anyway. They're just out there. Well, they're there in the environment. Yeah. I mean, russet mites are endemic to cannabis. They only live on cannabis. They're not found anywhere else. That's almost a symbiotic relationship. I don't know if I want to call this one symbiotic yet. <laughs> I feel like we've hit a balance. Yeah. If you just keep clean and, and have good practices, you're going to have them. The goal is not to eradicate them. No. You can't. In fact, I'm very suspicious of farms that are fully eradicated or have no powdery mildew that are outdoor. You know, sure, indoor you could probably achieve it because you can, negative pressures and whatnot, you can keep everything out. But here, you have an overgrown canopy and no powdery mildew, I get suspicious. Right, because there's not as much nature going on because you killed it all off with what? Right, so yeah. what, are, what heavy chemicals are you going to in order to maintain this very unlikely scenario? Right. How is it that you, a mile away, can have this dense canopy and no powdery mildew, yeah. whereas I have a cleaned out canopy with lots of air moving through it and yep. still have signs of powdery mildew. We have it under control. It's not a problem, but I don't see it as when I get worried. And there's something to be said for that. I think we worry too much. All of the things that we buy as, as paper products are bleached because yeah. we don't like the idea of it having specks to it or color mm. to it or that type of thing. And so we bleach everything because it needs to be pristine. And it, we carry some of these behaviors we don't really realize that we've come to hold as the standard or the baseline. And it's very antithesis to our sustainability and even to our health. Yeah. And a lot of times. And we're seeing this in cannabis. This over-focus on pesticides is great. I mean, I love it. But we are in the age of clean weed. It is not going to be any cleaner. And it's not going to be because of the people that are violating the rules, right? Like, yes, we should set up systems where the people get caught who violate the rules. Oh, mm -hmm. The guy who's putting microbutanol to keep the powdery mildew off because he never wants to put any labor in it, that guy should get caught. And I don't think we even have that right mm -hmm. now. I think that guy's getting away with it right now. But what we really need to worry about 
is that hemp is going to be legalized, which is which means that the FDA is going to be able to start labeling cannabis sativa for pesticides. Right. That's going to open up a whole bunch of pesticides that are not as kind as the one we are. Because the reason that we have such uh, mild pesticides in cannabis is because it's not a federally legal crop, and so they're not labeling. So only the labels that say for use on all crops can even be considered, uh-huh. right? And that is section 25 and, and schedule 3, I believe, or B, of the types of known toxic levels. And the ones that we have on the PICO list, that the state list that clears mm-hmm. for use, is all restricted to these non-labeled, non-toxic, essentially, pesticides. And right. so as we start to come in through hemp, which is cannabis sativa, same plant, that can then apply to cannabis. So then we're going to go down the road of tobacco, all of these bad pesticides, and they're going to be legal. Well, and that's what's funny <laughs> is that that's another thing that be, going federal would do, I think, to ruin the sustainability and the beauty of the plant, where maybe having other parts of it go federal is fine. And the cash part, the keeping the money in the state and the county part, there's just so many wonderful benefits that keep it a small business, not being federally legal. Yes. That, that worries me. Worries me too. And along on those same lines, what worries me is the commoditization of this crop. We did not legalize this to create a commodity. Commodity uh, crops don't do a lot of public good. We don't raise a lot of taxes on it. There's not a lot of great jobs Usually surrounding it. Usually it's also been subsidized and, and subsidized, like soy. Destructive. Yep. Well, yes. it feeds a million billion people more than not growing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, what are you doing to the people you're yeah. feeding it to? Commoditization of this crop. We made a deal with society when we legalized. The only way we got like the sheriff's association and everybody on board to actually vote legalization through was because we made a deal that we were going to highly regulate and we were going to tax the shit out of it. That's what we decided to do. What kept the crop valuable in the past was prohibition. If we want to maintain an industry that has value, that creates jobs, that creates innovation and and well-paying jobs, and this is a sin tax essentially, like it should be producing good jobs, we have to control production. We have to. If we do not control production, then we are going to turn this into a commodity and everybody's going to make minimum wage and it's just not going to be that fun. And all the oils and everything, all of that is just going to be grown in the most efficient way down to the quarter penny, tenth of a penny per milligram. And then no options the shelf full of one product in 15 ways there's no option it's all the same and then there'll be a tiny flower market a tiny connoisseur flower market that nobody can make any money at so nobody's going to make any money it's going to be like the vineyard that can't make money because they're so small and and the big corporate wine guys are 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 pushing grapes like crazy It's, it's true that's the way we're headed i really you know and the lcb just won't acknowledge the fact that they are at the helm of a market and that they control those knobs. I think it scares them. That they have those knobs and they need to use those knobs. I think it scares them. I think they don't want any backlash. I think they're worried about the moms crying out, the soccer mom who's crying in the tub because she ate a huge candy bar and they're afraid of the story of of the children. Oh my gosh, the children. And it's interesting that they're completely fear-basing 
instead of embracing, like you say, this beautiful economy with all this money that could pay for the homeless problem that we have. It could pay for the mental health issues that we have. It could supply, instead of pharmaceuticals, the drugs for people. So the beneficial health uh, aspect that cannabis can offer instead of drugs for people. And we have, we've, and we've had that, but we're at the we're at the brink or right at the point where we might lose it because of overproduction. At some point, this is going to become so cheap that we're going to keep selling more and more weed, but the tax revenue is going to start declining. And that's where we're at right now. The curve for selling weed is continuing to go up, but the revenue is starting to drop. And that's it's a problem. And you feel this more than, you know this more than, than yep. me even, mm-hmm. that that's where we're at. People are buying, but the price is so low. Oh, the drop of the price. Yeah, that yep, the yep. volume continues to go up. But the tax revenue is now starting to decline. So I thought as soon as those things start going like that, that's when the state's going to start paying attention. Luckily, they don't have very good data anymore with the whole traceability fiasco. So they may not, you know, they may not even, they may not even know. Well, and that made a huge impact into this industry. That did a lot of the price drive down. That did a lot of people storing product, losing product, going out of business, not being able to maintain when they were one of those on the cusps that was just trying to get geared up and finally had some momentum and it messed up all kinds of people and it changed the business model it is immoral what the lcb has done they coaxed everybody out of their closets and out of the black market promised them that you could just during this month apply for an application you could get that application if you qualified and then they just put them out to lose their business because they didn't control supply and it's on them. They are the ones responsible for all these people putting their 401ks in, they're selling their houses, all of the, a lot of people that came from marijuana that filled out those applications, they put everything they had everything, into it. Everything like a small business, like, like you're supposed yes. to as a small business. And then they get then they get put out to this market that the regulations alone to try to keep with up with the high regulation bar, no, no incentive. No incentive and no way to get a good price. Because because it's just way too much weed. Yeah. And here's how they've done it. They don't let licenses die. So people are going out of business right now, right? right? And they're selling their license, which is great for those people. They get to recoup some costs. Yeah. But the next people that come in with those licenses, they have more money, more expertise. So or now less or not any more. And well, then more they're likely the they're buying. So <laughs> they're, they're, they're actually more sophisticated, Hopefully, right? Because yeah. now they've got money. They can go buy their expertise if they don't have it. These guys are really going to, you know, they got money behind it. So now we've just increased the production, the quality of production, the quality of operations. Mm-hmm. And so they're actually going the opposite way a normal market would correct itself but a normal market requires when you go out of business you don't produce anymore and as long as we live in this world where you sell a license the next dumb money comes in we're going to continually just drive people out of business and I think it's immoral well and I think the thing that they don't realize that they're like you said I think is really profound they don't realize that they're at the helm of this business alcohol went through its prohibition it's the thing that everybody participates with on every single level it's advertised to us in every single way and then here comes cannabis and they don't treat it that way they treat it like the original we just got out of prohibition with alcohol instead of realizing that is of First off, they don't know the benefits or the the mindset of somebody who consumes cannabis versus somebody who consumes alcohol. But at the same time, they didn't give it the fair business model to 
become something well, that somebody could keep doing well. Like and it, look what happened so in alcohol. It was major corporate conglomeration for a really long time. And finally, we had this bit of a renaissance movement here where local breweries became a thing. Well, to then the, they all just got to, bought up again. Well, to the point where micros were now bigger selling more beer than macros right. and so yeah all those macros now have to go buy up their market share yeah, again now they're all 98 percent are all housed under budweiser well but every, yet they still hold, all exist in their own capacity they do and, and there's a lot of little ones there's a lot of towns that just have a brewery they're not yeah. owned yeah. they're independent and so that model took 80 years let's not repeat that cycle and that's let's exactly not, my point let's, yes. let's not <laughs> conglomerate right now but we are conglomerating right now look at the sales from the processors we have the big two and then we got like the medium five and then like everybody else yeah. and it's it's massive conglomeration and it's being supported even though there's all these rules against conglomeration you're not supposed to be vertically integrated you're not supposed to own more than five retail stores but they all find ways around it well, sure, because it's family. So once family's all together, they can then pool everything yeah. in ways that are not against the law yeah. when they follow the three little rules of the law. Yeah. And that's the other thing that I thought was so interesting with the LCB is that they were rather backwards on the emphasis that they put in this industry, too. Where they decided to put a severity of things, I think, is just backwards. Get the Department of Health involved, and then it gets really crazy. Now we've got this yellow and green plus 21 marijuana sign. Are you kidding me? It, I mean, it costs money to have plates in, in packaging, right? Every yes. color is more cost. Yeah. And they put two colors. They managed to get two colors on a plus 21 sign. I was on that advisory group, and the Department of Health just kind of came in and said, meh, that's what we're going to do. We we're all like, no, that's a terrible idea. Can't you do it a little differently? Like, no, that's what we're doing. Okay. I so, saw that plus 21, and it's ugly. Oh, it's and so it's bad. unfortunate it's so because I saw bad. it on the yeah. packaging, and it ruined uh, the packaging. It ruined my packaging just it now. It just it. proofed my, my, some of my new packaging. And, it's and just, did they give it a specific size? It had to be Oh, three-quarter well? inch, and it has to be on the front-facing side. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's a horror show. It's a, it's it's a, a horror ruined. show. It is it's so, so ugly. Bad. I bring back the stickers that you can remember the first stickers with the Washington... A symbol that in retail stores they had to when I first started, oh I remember that I had to put that yeah. on every single bag if somebody didn't want a paper bag they had to get that slapped uh, on it that didn't last long anybody we didn't like we put it right over the window <laughs> <laughs> I know you saw it once but bye <laughs> oh man that's yeah that, no that's that terrible that labeling laws is it, it's probably illegal you probably cannot require I mean there's all sorts of standards about what you can put on industries as far as government labels and warnings this stretches metal, it you know? so far like <laughs> wait you're gonna require yellow and green and it's gonna have to be three quarter of an inch that's an unfortunate thing maybe it'll change someday the organic one's gonna be the big one uh, it, it's gonna be huge as how it turns out so um, yeah tell us a little bit about like when that when this vote or discussion yeah. next is happening so the legislation passed the law in 2017 gave it to WSDA WSDA put an advisory group together I was a part of that we met twice they're about ready to release the CR-102, which will be the first draft of the rules. Okay. So then we'll have the public comment period there. It is their goal to implement the program in 2019. But at this point, I think that there's enough questions around long-term impacts on the regular organic standard, the legitimization of this sort of industrial indoor ag as organic. I think people are definitely starting to pause and think about how this might ruin organics forever. I'm not sure that the organic word would mean much mm -hmm. if a plant could never see the daylight 
and in essentially being enslaved its entire life and i'm going to consider that organic i think it'll be the death of the organic standard i think we will all look back at this point as to when it went the wrong way well i think so. it's real quick i think it's interesting that you bring up the fact that the sun is part of that process of growth because frankly it's only ever been about what goes into the soil it's interesting that you say that because the usda has just never ruled on artificial lighting being considered organic so our losing scenario here is that once somebody gets the organic standard we can test it and so then we would go through the the channels but right. that's a two or three year process that's a that's a losing strategy we hope we're not we don't get there we hope that uh look the the washington jay Inslee, he has an opportunity here to make a statement against the federal standard the federal standards kind of went the wrong way with this hydroponic ruling mm -hmm. at the same time that they did this hydroponic ruling they also took away the ethical treatment of animals portions of the organic standard so it's it's been weakened we're not regulated and the law said the state law said to the extent practical so we got the door open there to really have a national conversation here and this is what i consider this organic standard to be is a national conversation this is going to impact the entire future of what does it mean to be organic because california is waiting for us to see what we do and we'll see what california does regardless of which way we go california probably is from what i've heard has emission standards that could be very difficult to meet with indoor growing and just by the energy code alone mm -hmm. may not allow indoor Wouldn't growing. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. See that's the one thing I always think about is that regulation actually creates jobs. It doesn't destroy jobs. The, when you put in a sustainable practice there's people that have to manage that so if there has to be somebody to manage the water flow there has to be somebody to manage this that and the other there's tons and tons and tons more jobs and everybody's healthier. So I just don't understand why we're inherently not more interested in that. That's always such a surprise to me. Regulation has two blades to that sword. Mm -hmm. I agree, the sensible, well-formed societies are built on regulation. They are, it's, that's a fact. Not over-regulation. Not over-regulation, and dictatorships are built on over-regulation. I think people are so afraid of losing their rights that they're afraid to regulate in a reasonable way. And also, know? too, to set a standard of what is our rights. It isn't just willy-nilly, everybody gets to do whatever they want and it is an ecosystem. The impacts that we have are global. Just look at mercury. Yeah. It's airborne and it lands. And you know how much mercury is in these light bulbs? 30, 30 milligrams. Each, each light bulb has 30 milligrams. How are these light bulbs being thrown away? I'll tell you in the in prohibition, they were they ended up in the garbage or they didn't end up in the right place because the story with the Rockwell, you couldn't afford to risk it. Thank God we at least have indoor growers that have to meet some standard. I'm, I'm, I hope they're not just throwing the bulbs away. But I is there regulation being... to that yet? Has that even been thought I of? We wonder, don't know. I wonder what indoor growers are doing with their expended bulbs right now. Yeah. And I wonder what they're doing with their expended LED as well because the LED trades mercury for rare earth minerals. There's a lot going on in LED. There's a lot of diodes, a lot of computer components to that. But that's what makes them amazing, right? Because now you can start to build algorithms to grow marijuana that doesn't naturally occur. Like maybe they're going to grow crazy weed, part of a gamma waves and to just go off the charts. And then what does that do to you when you smoke it? The terpenes are I don't know. I'm not going to be into it, I don't think. <laughs> you have I to don't. at least try it once. You're going oh, to have to at least try it once. <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe I'll just be like, oh my god, this is amazing. I'm going to gamma yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so These guys with their gamma rays somehow got in sabonine to get to 2.5%. How did you guys get sabonine to 2.5%? Crazy. Dude, I have... I've got a laser and I've got some gamma. Yeah. And I'm gonna tell you. Who can't get stoned anymore, just needs to think like, 
a day break. And, like, and that's one to grow on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so much. So much. You're welcome. For more information and content, follow CBD Magcast on SoundCloud, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Visit us at canvasbeyonddope.com.